This is an ABC podcast. I'm Fiona Pepper and this is Fictions. This episode of Untrue Crime, it's Immersion by Kate Kennedy. It's a story of a fly fisher and a barmaid. He doesn't realise it at first, but the two of them share a sinister secret. Here's Immersion by Kate Kennedy. He was down at the fast-flowing bend, exactly where I'd told him the locals fished. The day was cold, and he was kitted out in waders and a heavy-knit sweater and beanie. And he looked just like anyone, any retiree keen on fishing, taking a break in the high country, walking up and down this hidden stretch of the river, looking for the deep pools to cast into. I'd seen him up at the Angler's Inn, the local pub the new owners had done up like a fishing lodge in Ireland, with hanging wicker baskets and creels and those framed collections of fishing flies. Flies with their little bits of feather and bead, made not in Old Ireland but in some sweatshop in Manila. A few fake mounted trout over the bar I worked there four nights a week, trapped, listening to fishing stories behind that same bar. This guy had made himself a favourite with the waitresses in the bistro pretty quick, laying on plenty of charm and tips. I told him just where this place was as I'd poured him a whiskey the night before, even drawn a map showing him how to get here. And here he was. And conditions were perfect. Fishing starts after the ski season, when the big thaw begins and the meltwater comes pounding down from the mountains, full of debris and branches, and hungry trout, if you're lucky. Lots of October visitors like this guy, travelling solo, keen to fish all day, even though it was still pretty chilly. Retired accountants and public servants, these men were, up from Canberra. Men with a proclaimed taste for the solitude of fly fishing. Men who needed a hobby. Blokes with wives tend to head to Queensland or Bali, but this guy didn't have a wife. He brought a book to the table in the bistro. You could smell bachelorhood rising off him in waves with his cologne. Thought I might find you here, I called as I walked up to the pebbly bank where he was standing and slung my backpack down. You never walk up on a local's fishing patch, but this noob turned with a jump and was delighted to see me. Now I know they must be biting, he said, smiling hugely. Great to get some insider intel too. Bit out of the way, this spot, but looks perfect, thanks. Don't want to crowd you, I said. Not at all. I'd enjoy the company. He hooked back his arm and cast in 
I'm trying to cast out into these little eddies there, those deep spots, he said. Good plan. No point trying to tell him different. I waited, sitting a little behind him on a beached log, saying nothing. I've noticed people who profess something, nerves of steel, say, or a love of solitude, are generally in the business of convincing you of it, rather than being in possession of it. It took hardly any time for him to want to fill the silence. Nice to see a female angler now and then, he said. I was beginning to think it was all a men's game. Probably shouldn't say that, am I right? Not in these days of political correctness. He gave a little chuckle. Oh, I'm not much for fishing, I said. Really? But I thought with your gear and advice and all. Well, I can do it, if that's what you mean. But I just don't tend to, as a rule. So, you're out here just keeping old man company then? He turned to smile at me. A broad, innocent smile. It's my day off, I said, and pointed. See that dark patch over there? Cast into there. That's where one might be lurking. His smile gave way to faint puzzlement, and I could see him take a more assessing look at me before he turned back to follow where I was pointing. He got his rod and line gathered up and organised and cast again, just as awkwardly as before. Over the familiar dank smell of rotting leaves and river water, I could smell his aftershave. Imagined him shaving every morning, slapping it on, keeping up appearances. Imagine that little vanity. So, you live up here, he said finally. I do. Often thought I'd like to retire up here in the mountains, but once you quit work, you know, you get settled. My name's Kev, by the way. I know. Kevin Kelly. His rod lowered and his head turned sharply. Frowning now. How do you know that? I saw it on the guest register, I said. Just wanted to check. He busied himself, reeling in his fly out of the hole. Droplets of water glistened and shook on the line, little diamonds in the cold sunshine. Over the roar of the water, I heard him mutter something. I'm sorry, I said. Did you say something? I said, you're the manager, are you? Checking up on the guests. No, Angela and Frank are the managers. I stood up, shading my eyes. Kev, I think your line is snagged. We both stood, observing the bright green fly tangled in a jutting branch, half buried on the far side of the sandbar. He gave his line an ineffectual tug. Bucker it, he said. Do I have to cut it off? I shrugged. Well, 
It's only a few metres out there, stuck in some debris in shallow water. And you've worn your waders and everything. Why don't you just get in and unhook it? Pity to waste an expensive fly. He put his rod down carefully on the dirt and squinted over the distance, hesitating. You reckon it's safe? Sure. He took a tentative step out, ankle deep into the pebbly shallows. He glanced back at me and I smiled encouragingly. Let me get a knife, I said, in case you need to cut it. I pulled out my knife and stepped out there with him, feeling the bone chill of the freezing water through my gumboots. A scudding branch swept into view and sailed past us on the current. He was pale now, looking at me properly. No big fake Santa smile. His eyes flicked uneasily to the knife, then back searchingly to my face. I have to hand it to him. He tried to brazen it out. I think I'll leave it, he said, trying for a casual shrug. I stood between him and the shore, the knife dangling easily in my hand. No, I said. Go out there and get it, Kevin. He was only five metres away, and only in a little over his knees. But he looked way more nervous than he needed to. In fact, he staggered a little. People don't realise how strong a current can be, or how easily it can knock you off your feet unexpectedly. Water weighs a tonne per cubic metre. Same as a car hitting you, really. It's all about depth and speed. I'm not a strong swimmer, he added with an apologetic smile, spreading his hands in a gesture he must have thought looked jovial, or jokey, or pleading. Give it your best shot, I said. He dropped his arms then and stood still. The water roared around us, and his eyes narrowed as he sized me up from the distance between us, my face shaded under my cap. I'm sure we've never met before, he said. I shook my head. We have, I said. But I was a child then, so you probably wouldn't recognise me. I'm sure I look different, but don't let it worry you. You never bothered learning our names anyway. He took a step backwards. I don't know who you are, young lady, he said, but you've made some sort of mistake. There's no mistake, I said. Christian Youth Ministry Camp, the one with the bunkhouses up in the hills with the crappy swimming pool where you pretended to be Jesus and baptised us. No, sorry, not Jesus. John the Baptist. The three dunkings. Remember? Immersion.
more scrutiny. Biding his time there in the cold, rushing water. They're good at waiting, these men. I gestured him forward again. Go out and unsnag your lure, Father Kevin, I said. Try not to slip. He was looking at me grey-faced now, but of course he couldn't place me. How would he when I'd been eight? And why would he when there'd been such a pack of us? He'd done those summer holiday camps for years. Our parents couldn't speak highly enough of Father Kevin, taking the kids on retreat, teaching them hymns. Kids queued up shivering in their bathers, ready to be dunked and blessed by Father Kevin. Kids there for the taking. Keep going, I said now. You've got me mixed up with somebody else, he said hoarsely. I'm not a priest. Keep going, I repeated. Wade out to the log. Pretend it's the River Jordan, I said, and held up the knife. He turned back towards the river and took three or four cautious steps closer to his snagged line and the branch that held it. I could hear the suck and crunch of the gravel and stones under his feet. I followed him out, feeling the powerful pull of the current as it reached my knees. He turned. He'd composed himself. I'm going to reach over and pull this free, he said stiffly. And then you're going to let me get out and go back to shore and I'll get in my car and leave. So authoritative, I said. No wonder my parents didn't believe me when I told them. I motioned him to move closer, down onto the deep, treacherous incline towards the half-submerged log. His hand came out, fumbling, and clung to one of the protruding branches for balance. I moved closer now. Despite the din of the water, I could keep my voice low, and I knew he could still hear me. His eyes were downcast, like a supplicant. I suppose he must have had plenty of time to rehearse all through his long career. Down on your knees, I said. You know the drill. I don't. You do. Remember? It's to baptize us all in the name of the Holy Spirit. Full immersion. There was nothing, he began. Down, I said. And mesmerized, he sank to his knees in the water. I'll tell you something, I said. I never got married, never had kids, never trusted anybody enough. I'm freezing, he said. You can get out in a minute. Really? 
Of course. But first I want to hear you say it. Full name and title. There was a pause. What a morning it was, with the snow-fed water flooding through and the birds cawing and coming awake along the shore. The weak spring sunlight turning the surface into a million splashes of light. I just want to be sure, I said. You still use the same aftershave. Your name is the same. But you look so small and old, Kevin. So pathetic and wizened. I just need to be a hundred percent sure it's really you. He bowed his head, his jaw clenched, lips blue. You can understand that, can't you? The need to be sure? Why not just say it? Don't you dare tell anybody, he'd said to me, his hand down my pants. Or I'll make your daddy lose his job. The water was pulling at his knitted jumper now, wicking up and soaking it. Probably some devoted parishioner had made him that jumper. Some loving feminine hand, like the ones that arranged the flowers and polished the floor and cooked and cleaned for him. Father Kevin Michael Kelly, he muttered finally, can't hear you. He said it louder then. Do you want me to beg? Is that it? Begging, I said. Gets you nowhere. Something I learnt early. I could have waded back to shore or taken a good long healing look at him there, hunched on his knees, clinging onto a dead tree in a river, penitent as a picture of a suffering sinner on a holy card. You're all just after the money anyway, he muttered. That aggrieved little flare of petulance in his voice, the childish sulk in it, that's what did me in. I raised a dripping foot to boot him over into the water. But he was up and rising, moving fast for a cowering old man his hand clawing to snatch the knife out of my hand. Instead of his shoulder, my boot connected squarely with his chest, and I heard the breath burst out of him as I kicked, and his head snapped back as he toppled. The branch he'd been clinging to did a slow flip with him as he crashed over it, and I could hear it tearing free from the sandbank as it went. The knife flew in an arc from my fist and I heard it land in the water with a noise like a leaping trout. I remembered how everything had teetered back then and how his hand had gripped the back of my neck and held me down in that pool. I'd gone in eyes open and felt the horizon slide and become liquid felt the cool, contemptuous certainty in his grip, the implacable power of him. As I went under, I'd seen the scared eyes of the other kids waiting their turn, 
in the thrall of this man who came into our rooms at night and selected us. Each of us thinking we were the only one. Now I blinked. I steadied myself in the current and pressed my foot firmly on the snagging, slimed branches. He'd grabbed them, footing gone in the fast, deep current. And now he was pinned under the tangle of them. His mouth was open with terror at how quickly things had shifted. How suddenly things had gone to incomprehensible shit. Well, under three times, Father Kevin. Under three times, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Down to the river to be washed in the blood of our Lord. Time for penance. You know all the prayers. It must be sheer reflex by now. My turn now to press down with all my weight and feel the quick, sickening power of it go through me. Then release. Grasp the torn trunk and haul it free. Push it out and let the current take it. And careen it through that glittering ice melt swirl and travel scudding with its saturated lumpish cargo down the river until there's just blessed silence. I searched for my fishing knife and saw it submerged, lying silver and clean on the pebbles of the riverbed. Took it and my bag back up to the track I'd walked to get here, along the grass edges and dry verges, back to my own car where I'd parked it. Not a soul around. The day growing warmer now, as the sun got higher and stronger. More snow melting up in the hills. More river water pouring down to the low lakes miles away. Water full of branches and snags and floating debris and dead things and hungry fish. A humming day Oh, children, let's go down, down to the river to pray. Immersion, starring Claudia Carvin. Next episode in Untrue Crime, Patty O'Reilly brings us a story of desperation and just where it leads. The series is curated by Mark Dappen, edited by Sophie Townsend, with sound by Derek Allen and mixing by Tom Henry and Simon Branthwaite, with music composed by James Brown. I'm Fiona Pepper. 
I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.